Welcome to the Modern Mommy Doc Podcast. I'm Dr. Whitney Caceres. I'm a full-time pediatrician and a full-time modern mom. I speak and write about equipping mamas to raise resilient, healthy children and to invest in their own social-emotional health along the way. Each week, we'll give you the practical tools you need to win at parenting without losing yourself. You guys, today I'm so excited to welcome Jessica Vogie. She is an OBGYN in my hometown. Well, not my hometown, but my adopted hometown in Portland. And really excited to have her here to talk about some intimate issues, some things that we don't always chat about with other moms, definitely not to our partners very much, sometimes not even to our health professionals. So Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. Okay. So tell me, first of all, and tell us who you are, what do you do, how'd you get to where you are today? I'm a general OBGYN, which means I do just regular gynecology and obstetrics. So I take care of women of all ages, adolescents, having babies, trying not to have babies, menopause, all of it. I do surgery. I deliver babies. So all of that. I'm from Portland and I've done all of my training here in Oregon. I was planning on being an orthopedic surgeon. Ooh. I loved sports medicine. I loved taking care of the idea of taking care of the healthy patient and helping them be the best person and athlete that they could be. And then I just fell in love with women's health and OBGYN in medical school and then found out that all of my friends and family were like, of course you were going to be an OBGYN. You're always the one that we talk to about like the weird personal stuff and you don't shy away from those kinds of conversations and that makes total sense that that's what you would do for your life. That's so, cool. And yeah. so how, what made you fall in love with OBGYN stuff? I had no idea how much clinic and surgery OBGYNs get to do. I thought it would be a much more of just an office-based job, but I'm in the hospital every day, whether it be on labor and delivery or postpartum rounding or doing surgery and hysterectomies and ovarian cysts and all of that. Lots of procedures in the clinic, which is fun for me. And then I think also just the ability to have long-term relationships with your patients mm-hmm. um, is, is really rewarding for me. I just, for the first time, got to deliver the third baby of one of my patients. I'm, you know, I've been in my current practice for five years, so I'm starting to get to those second and third babies with some people. And even having younger sisters or a few mom-daughter patient relationships, which are fun. So just the ability to have these you know, deep, ongoing relationships with patients. Yeah, I totally appreciate that. That's what I love about pediatrics sure. is... Yeah. You see people when they're babies, and then you get to see them when they're older. Then sometimes that person's baby. <laughs> it's crazy. Although my dad was a high school teacher, like economics, and he told me that his limit was like, if I get to the third generation of people, then I'm done. Just I'm like put a fork in me. I'm finished. <laughs> that sounds fair. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, and gynecology and obstetrics, I mean, it's no joke. You guys are real heroes. There are life-threatening emergencies that happen. There are times when the stress level is the highest it's ever ever been in someone's life. So, I mean, talk about helping people who are healthy, but going through a really hard time or a crisis moment or something that you just need to be like really on it for them. Yeah. I am. I'm so thankful that most of my patients are so healthy to begin with that when bad things happen in the pregnancy or labor process that their bodies are really able to cope with a lot of stress and a lot of bad things happening. I think about other parts of the hospital where the patients don't come in with the health that mine fortunately do. I still am like 
terrified of being on a plane and someone asking if a doctor is there. Me I'm too. not sure what I would do in that scenario, but if there is a woman having a baby or a complication of a pregnancy issue, I feel very equipped to handle that. And then I kind of freak out in the car on the way home. Yeah. I, that's, that's when it hits or when I go home and try to go to sleep and then my mind starts racing and the adrenaline hits then. But in the moment I am pretty cool. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. No, I, I, I feel you on that. I'm always on a trip to Hawaii. Like nobody ask if there's a doctor here, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, and then you have a couple kids yourself. Yes. Yeah. I have a son who just started kindergarten. So he just turned six. And then my daughter will be three in a few months. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of excitement at home and at work. Yeah. And you can understand, I'm sure, what other moms are going through when they deal with some of these issues we're going to talk about. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So a lot of women, we're just going to get like so into like the nitty gritty, like deep hardcore, because you guys know that that's like, that's the whole point. Why even have a podcast if we're going to talk about superficial junk that nobody cares about? So <laughs> a lot of women tell me in my work with Modern Mommy Doc that they feel like they've somehow lost themselves after they have their babies or they feel like they don't recognize themselves, especially physically. And you see everybody intimately physically after they give birth. Can you tell me about that experience for the patients that you have? Absolutely. I will say that how I have talked to patients about all of the issues we're going to talk about today has changed a lot since I've had kids of my own and the first one. And then the second one, that was even different. So I I admit that probably my, my counseling of them might even change over time as other things happen in my life. But I think one thing that is interesting is a lot of times I'll see women in their first pregnancy and they ask really good questions about preparing, being healthy in pregnancy, preparing for the birth, preparing for postpartum. And it's on their mind. Like, how can I minimize the damage that this is going to do to my body and be back to my normal self right away? I'm, I'm going to be one of those moms that just rocks. It and looks like they didn't even have a kid two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I try to set up expectations for them that while you're pregnant, there is a parasite inside of you. It is stealing things from you. It is stealing your oxygen and your nutrients and you're fatigued for a reason because literally there is something stealing everything from you. Mm -hmm. It's a really good opportunity to learn to be an awesome selfless parent because Mm -hmm. things are being taken from you all Mm -hmm. the time. And there's not a whole lot of reward other than people holding doors open for you while you're pregnant and things Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So trying to set up expectations for there's going to be at least several weeks or months or maybe a little bit more where you're not going to feel like yourself and you're going to feel like it's give, 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 give. And if you can have good expectations going into that, that's going to be a little bit more helpful. Postpartum, then it really varies a Mm -hmm. lot, but just trying to normalize it for people as they're going through whatever the individual struggle. I think we'll talk about some of the specific issues, but when people are postpartum and they say, is this normal? How long does this take to get back to normal? I generally might there's the six to eight weeks of healing from the delivery, whether it be a vaginal birth or a cesarean birth. And then there's the first three months where like, yes, technically tissue is healed, but things are still lax and loose and not really back to kind of the strength or health that they are going to be. And then from three months to one year, or really as long as you're breastfeeding for, there's still a lot of recovery and a new norm that has to be that norm for a while. Mm -hmm. I generally tell people, Once your baby turns one, if you're celebrating that first birthday, that should be the point in your mind where you say, huh, I should probably get back to the doctor. This would be an appropriate time to start incorporating exercise into my routine again. If it's already happened, great. But if not, this is a time that I should start to make that a priority. My baby can do without me for a few hours a week and, and those types of things. Yeah, totally. And I mean, there's two things you said that I think are important there. One, when you're pregnant, you do learn like, okay, there's all this like selfless you're learning how to be selfless because when you are a mom, we all know that like it is a selfless act to be a mother. 
but then two, that hopefully people are learning how to take care of themselves. I think this is where we fall down, like taking care of themselves in that time too, because guess what? It's not like you're going to not be pregnant. And then all of a sudden you're going to be able to take amazing care of yourself. If you can't take care of yourself when you're pregnant, sorry, like it's, it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it has to be, I think, intentional about taking care of yourself early on. And I was just reading this book that's about how to be happy in your relationship with somebody else. And it was talking all about how you have to be intentional about your moments that you have away and that you can't have them be contaminated by just like mommy to do stuff, that it has to be that it's actually for you what you want to do in that moment. Mm -hmm. So anyway, it starts early. Okay. Tell me about the emotional things that you're seeing with your patients and specifically postpartum depression and anxiety. Can you tell people what that looks like? If you feel like it's on the rise, tell me what your experience is. I think my experience is a little bit sort of different than other people might be given just the population that I work in. I work with a lot of working moms, a lot of moms who maybe had appropriately, but delayed childbearing until their thirties, at least, if not mid to late thirties. So a lot of people who have followed the rules with school, with their education, with their training, with everything in life, they've been very successful. If they just jumped through the right hoops, they would get what they wanted out of it and be successful. Mm -hmm. So then you put in the biology of trying to get pregnant. So they've already potentially had struggles getting pregnant or keeping a pregnancy mm -hmm. and then getting through a pregnancy. And now they're postpartum and they continue to have really high expectations for how they're going to handle every situation that they've never had to handle before. So all of these ideas about, well, this is the kind of mom I'm going to be. Well, how do you know you're not a mom yet? So see how you feel in that moment. Yeah. And then I think just everything that society puts on what a successful family and mother baby relationship looks like can be really, really difficult. We know that there's certain things that will make postpartum anxiety and depression more likely like a complicated pregnancy, a mm -hmm. high risk pregnancy, preterm birth, a baby that needed to be in the NICU for a while, history of anxiety or depression. So all of those things are going to make it more likely for a woman to struggle with those. A lot of people who have been very successful in their careers had some level of anxiety, OCD, type A qualities that allowed them to be very successful in their job. And now is going to make it be a bit of a struggle when you have no control over whether or not your baby is colicky or not, or has reflux or all of these other issues. The other thing that I think is causing the biggest rise in the patients that I'm seeing with some level of postpartum anxiety and depression is breastfeeding. And how aggressive we have become in trying to optimize the number and you know, amount of women who are quote unquote successfully breastfeeding mm -hmm. that we say breast is best. I believe all of these things. I really yeah. do believe yeah. that breast milk is the best thing for a baby. Yeah. But I tell every single family that I sent home from the hospital, you guys need to figure out what works for you and your family for you all to be healthy and functional. Because I see so many women who are so obsessed with how many ounces they've pumped and the ounces that their babies have gained and, and all of these things that they are having no time or energy to actually bond with their baby and take care of themselves because they could become so obsessed with that. Yeah. And it feels also like if you've been able to control every other thing in your life and then your baby's born, and then this is the only thing you can kind of quasi control. You grab tighter onto it when it feels like you're losing control or it's not going exactly the way you want it to. So you start to be like, no, let's document it. Let's like put all the data on a graph. Like it starts to feel very much like if I just put checky boxes or if I make a Excel table on this and or it's eat the right cookie. Right. <laughs> totally. Any of that. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And I mean, I think 
you can speak to this too. Like hundred percent breast is amazing for babies, but if we aren't there as a society in terms of the policies that make it so that moms can do it successfully, we still want to promote it, but then we have to give grace to the people who it doesn't work out for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I love that our society has gotten to a place with fertility treatment that Mm -hmm. women who previously may not have been able to conceive spontaneously are able to get pregnant, have families in all different types of ways. But that's become pretty um, normalized if you can afford it. And that's a whole nother issue about policy and society (laughs) we live in. But that people have mentally, many people have mentally gotten over that barrier of, okay, I was able to become a mom this way. But there are some women's bodies who are just not going to be able to produce enough milk for their baby. And you know what would have happened before? Many years ago, if that happened, maybe the baby wouldn't have made it. And that was just part of caveman society or whatever. And that is not where we are. We have a lot of other ways to keep babies and families healthy and happy and thriving Mm -hmm. that are not just the standard go-to breastfeed. So, I mean, again, I do support breastfeeding. I think that we should do everything we can to help people be successful in that. But depressed mom who's making a lot of milk is not going to be the best mom necessarily. Yeah. 100%. The number of times that I have looked into a mom's weeping eyes and said, you are an amazing mom, not despite the fact that you're giving formula, but because you chose to do what's the right thing for you that will make you have the best mental health possible and then hopefully be able to stop focusing on all of this and start focusing on what's right in front of you. Yeah, 100%. I love that. Okay, let's talk specifically about women's bodies. What do women need to expect after they give birth when it comes to their physical appearance? They are not going to leave the hospital in high heels looking like royalty from other parts of our world most yes. of the time. Oh my goodness. Most people will be more swollen in their hands and feet and legs than they were even in pregnancy for the first few days after birth and sometimes the first few weeks. It's common for people to feel like they have those carpal tunnel syndrome feelings, numbness and tingling in their hands and weakness in their hands for sometimes six to 12 weeks after birth. That doesn't just go away as soon as the baby comes out. That low belly, which is sometimes almost worse right after birth because the uterus has shrunk down and then it's just kind of left these muscles and skin and everything. And there is no, I mean, you can put a binder on it and hold it in, but it is there and Mm -hmm. it's going to be there for several months. I remember after I had my son, when I finally was able to get back to the gym and I looked around and I had this aha moment, I was like, she's had a baby. She's had a baby. She's had a baby. (laughs) Just because I could tell, just because that lower abdominal portion, it takes a lot of work and some people's biology just doesn't allow it to completely go away. So that's a big one. And then there's just the healing, whether it be from cesarean or vaginal birth, there's a lot of healing that goes on. That fortunately all tends to heal really well on its own. If you just leave it alone, six to eight weeks for that. But the other stuff can take months. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one thing that I know my OB always talked to me about, I'm sure you do too, with your patients is like, dude, give it a rest. This is not your moment to be training for a half marathon or something. If going around the block is too much, you should just sit and do some like basic stretching or like close your eyes and listen to birds. Like, like, why do you need to be looking like a celebrity right now. Absolutely. I, I tell people all the time, no offense. Nobody's looking at you. If you're out with your baby, everyone's like, oh, cute baby. They're not paying any attention to what you look like. So get yeah. over it. Yeah. And the harder that you push yourself in the very beginning, if you push yourself too hard in the beginning, it can backfire and cause more trouble. Absolutely. Yeah. How about diastasis recti? What's that? Because people, I think, get confused about like the mom pooch versus diastasis recti versus both combined. Yes. So just kind of the general like mommy pooch is the lower abdomen. It's kind of uniform across the 
whole lower abdomen, mm-hmm. just like a little little pooch. (laughs) The diastasis recti is, so the rectus abdominal muscles are the main muscles that run up and down on either side of your belly button. And if there's the definition across the side too, you might have a six pack or an eight pack abs, but those are the ab muscles that people really are generally talking about. And there is a natural separation between the two. They are two separate muscles on the right and the left. Mm -hmm. And when you are pregnant, the muscles stretch and they kind of have a little space that develops between the two of them just because that's how the growing belly causes that soft tissue to stretch. There's also underneath that several other layers of muscle that go side to side and at diagonal levels. And then inside all of that is the fascia. And the fascia is really sort of the tough tissue that holds all of our intestines inside. So when people say, that they had a hernia, that's a hole or a defect in the fascia that allows their intestines to sort of poke through and push onto the skin and create a little hole. So when people are talking about a rectus diastasis, they're really talking about a separation of the muscles, but also a laxity of the fascia. And what that ends up producing is specifically, if you were to lay down and do like a little half sit up, you would see a space bulging through between the two muscles. So running up and down long ways across the belly, usually two to three inches or so wide. And that's a true diastasis. Okay. Awesome. And then what can people do about it? Well, first of all, if you don't know if you have one or not, you don't have a significant one. I have patients all the way, all the time. Can you, can you test me and see if I have this? If you don't know that you have one, then it's not a problem. It's not big. Got it. The way you test it is to do like a little half sit up and place your fingers in between right in the middle and kind of move side to side and see, you know, how many fingers would fit between the two muscles. And usually two to three finger widths is what would cause somebody to be bothered by it. Bothersome could be symptoms. So feeling like they don't have a lot of core strength, like it's hard to get up from out of bed without using your hands at the same time, those types of things, which is we do all the time when we have babies, right? You grab the diaper bag, you grab your baby, you try and stand up and move. And and that can be difficult if your core is not feeling super strong. The other thing that people are probably the most bothered by is ultimately when you're going to hit the beach back in your bikini or even just be at home with your loved ones doing kind of that sit up motion and having that bulge show in between. Mm -hmm. And so people are bothered just by the aesthetic aspect of it. Is there anything you can do about it? Well, some people are going to get this. Some people aren't. I do think that fitness before and during pregnancy is one way to really fight off having it because we do know that that laxity of the fascia, if you're a really healthy fit person, your fascia is not going to be as flexible or lax, but a lot of it is just going to be genetics to be completely honest. When you have a C-section, often surgeons will sew the muscles together, but that's only from the belly button down. We're usually not surgically above where the belly button is. So that area where I think people are usually bothered by it would just be kind of left alone. And when we sew those muscles together below the belly button, that's dissolvable suture. So it doesn't stay forever, but the idea is just that it brings things close enough together in those first few weeks that the healing can happen in that position rather than separated. That's not why we do it, by the way. We do it for other reasons, but it's kind of an added benefit. Really, the main surgery to fix a bad diastasis is a surgery of the fascia level. And those are pretty rarely done. But for some people who are really, really feeling weak or core pain, that would be ultimately the appropriate thing to do. There's tons of blogs and apps and workout programs and trainers. So people will do physical therapy for this. People will go to personal trainers for it. And a lot of people will have a lot of success with that. Some people are not going to be successful no matter what they do or how much money they fork out for all of that, just based on their anatomy and how weak their fascia is. And I'm assuming that some of the workouts is just that they're appropriately retraining their abdominal muscles. Absolutely. So it might not even be that it's the diastasis recti. It's more just you're actually getting that core strength back. 
and getting time from the delivery and their body is going to heal a lot on its own. I'm very hesitant to prescribe or recommend physical therapy for anybody sooner than three months postpartum Mm -hmm. because there's so much natural healing and remodeling that happens during that time anyway, that I don't think it's really necessary after three months. If someone's really bothered and struggling that I think physical therapy can only help. I don't think it's going to hurt, but it may not fix it. And that doesn't mean that they did it wrong or they had the wrong trainer or they waited too long. I don't think any of that's going to play a role. Hey mama, when I think about the times I have felt the most overwhelmed or discouraged as a mom, they all share one common theme. In all of them, I felt directionless or like I was headed in the wrong direction even. So as I dove into what could make it better for myself or for my family or just for life in general, I started thinking every day about how I was actually going to move toward where I wanted to be in six core areas. My dreams, spending time on what matters, making space for myself, taking care of my mental and physical health, parenting and partnership, and being really purposeful about understanding who my kids are, what their needs are, and how I can best parent them as individuals. And after a while, I realized I had something I could come back to when I felt rudderless, but also that I felt lost less often. So I started writing down for the Modern Mommy Doc community more about these six core areas, and that's how the Parenting with Intention journal came to be. Because as I shared what I learned about intentional parenting with other mamas in my clinic or online, it resonated with them. We designed the Parenting with Intention journal to be quarterly, so you could start fresh every three months and be able to look back on the year in chunks and see your progress. If you're feeling like you could use some more intention in your motherhood journey, you can check it out at modernmommydoc.com forward slash shop. You can make your own journal with a notebook or even lined paper. You don't have to buy anything to do this. Above all, I hope you'll take at least five minutes a day to stop, slow it down, and really get intentional about what your motherhood journey is all about. I think that's super helpful. I hope that listeners are really hearing that because I think sometimes right after we give birth, then we're like, better jump on it, do it right now, as opposed to just letting your body heal, do its thing, and then continuing to check in with your provider. But it doesn't have to be that it's right now or never that you deal with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Let's talk about incontinence and hemorrhoids, both of which I experienced, especially after my second daughter, I would be running. And once my muscles got fatigued, I would just totally pee. And sometimes a little bit, but sometimes like a lot of it. And at first I honestly brushed it under the rug because I kind of felt like, well, maybe this is just part of being like a mom now, or like, I don't know what I thought. I was maybe too embarrassed to talk to my husband about it. My husband's a physical therapist, not a pelvic floor, but like a regular, like orthopedic physical therapist. And it was him who was like, you have to get this taken care of. Not for anybody, but you, but honestly, this is not, this is not right. So talk about that. What is incontinence caused by, and what are the hemorrhoids caused by? Cause I feel like they're, you know, intertwined. They are linked. Similar things cause both of them. So First of all, I mean, a lot can be put on the type of delivery you have. And if you had to push for three hours or six hours or something crazy like that versus your baby came right out. But to be totally honest with you, most of the damage is done just by being pregnant. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about our pelvis, it's a series of bones that basically create a circle. You have your hip bones over on the side that come together in the front as the pubic bones where they meet. And then the sacrum is the tailbone in the back. So it creates this circle of bones 
But the bottom of this circle, if you think about it as a bowl, there's no bones on the bottom because then we wouldn't be able to have babies or poop or pee or any of that because the bones would be blocking that space. So the bottom of this bowl is created by all of these muscles that sort of intertwine and connect to each other to help support all of our insides. When our skeletons are up walking around, this bowl of muscles, this floor of muscles is help keeping our intestines and all of our organs up inside of us so they're not falling down through the hole that our skeleton creates. So that's doing a really important job all day, every day throughout our whole lives. And that balance is pretty well maintained. Now you add 30 or 40 pounds of a growing uterus and a baby and placenta and fluid and all of that on top of this pelvic floor over a relatively short amount of time, those muscles don't necessarily have the opportunity to strengthen and counteract that. Mm -hmm. So they just get weakened. They get a little bit stretched out and tired over the course of being pregnant. And then you add three hours of pushing that weakens them or tears them even more. So postpartum, these muscles are pretty weak. If you imagine your bladder now is sitting right on top of those pelvic floor muscles, and then there's any kind of pressure from above, coughing, laughing, sneezing, jumping, jogging, that's all extra pressure on top of this balloon, essentially this water balloon. And what's keeping all of that urine inside at any given time is the strength of the pelvic floor muscles acting against that pressure. So just doesn't take much, but a little bit of extra pressure with those activities is just going to push enough urine past the pelvic floor muscles. So that really is a muscle problem. That is something that if you are having some leakage with those types of activities that often pelvic floor training can help counteract that. Kegels are sort of the classic example Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. squeezing, like you're going to try and stop your pee, holding it for a few seconds and then letting go. Most of us do this in the moment when we're about to leak or have those problems with Kegel and then you're able to kind of keep it in or hopefully keep most of it in. But there are more designated exercise programs to really strengthen those muscles. And for most people, that's going to be pretty effective in helping control that. But some of the damage that is done is just too much. So incontinence and prolapse symptoms where it feels like pelvic pressure almost feels like like a tampon sitting too low in your vagina Mm -hmm. like that kind of sensation that something's sitting there that's not supposed to be there sometimes we do have to use other things things that we insert into the vagina called a pessary or even surgery to help hold things up but for sure physical therapy exercises on your own and then physical therapy with a trained professional are the best things to try first to help control that Almost everybody has incontinence after birth for the first few weeks, and it gets better and better and better. And that's just the trauma of delivery, the trauma of having a catheter in your bladder if you had that. So if you're leaking right when you're leaving the hospital, do not worry. It is going to get better, and it likely will fully resolve. Thank goodness. But okay. yes, don't, <laughs> yeah. don't need to be calling for the physical yeah. therapy referral right then. But ultimately, again, three months is kind of that magic time for me. If you're still leaking at three months, then it's time to start thinking about doing something about it. Okay. Awesome. And then how about the hemorrhoids? Hemorrhoids. So same thing. Hemorrhoids is that's just pressure on the pelvic floor and really on the the rectum and the anus putting pressure there. So most people who are going to be at risk of having hemorrhoids outside of pregnancy and then even worse with pregnancy are people who are constipated Mm -hmm. because they sit on the toilet and they push really hard to have a bowel movement. And when you're pushing, you're essentially fighting against your own pelvic floor and also pushing the the inside mucosa part of the rectum outward. So hemorrhoids are varicose veins. We all get varicose veins in our legs to some different degree when Mm -hmm. we're pregnant and usually they get better after pregnancy. They don't always go away entirely, but they usually aren't as bad as they are at the worst part of pregnancy. So if you're sitting on the toilet, really trying to bear down and push to have bowel movements, you're feeling constipated and you're pregnant. Now you have two risks against you for having 
swelling of those veins that are in your bottom. So the first thing we do is try to avoid constipation, increase fiber, increase hydration, changes in the diet to help decrease the likelihood of constipation. A lot of people in pregnancy are constipated even if they've never struggled with that earlier in their life. People are taking their prenatal vitamin, which should have iron in it, and that makes you constipated whether you realize it or not. Your baby is stealing your fluid, so all of your hydration that's going into your blood is now going to your baby instead of to your intestines to keep your intestine, your stool nice and soft. So even more reason to drink a lot of water. So constipation, not sitting for a long time on the toilet. If you have to poop, sit down and poop. If it's not coming, get up and go walk around and come back when it's time to, to have a bowel movement. Don't just <laughs> See, sit. you guys, yeah. solid tactical advice yes. today. <laughs> I go crazy when I go to like a house party or something and I see books in their bathroom. I'm like, nobody should be sitting here long enough yeah. to read a book. I'm sorry if that's where you've recommended people put your books. No, people. that is not. <laughs> no, I'm only laughing like... because I'm, t- I'm thinking about my husband now. You know, because like men classically do this where they like have their phone or like some odd thing in there. I'm like, seriously? Get up. Are you, go back to it later. So that's one thing is don't sit for a long time on the toilet. Don't really strain or bear down really hard to have bowel movements. And then one thing that you could do that's pretty practical, and this may be TMI or too gross, but if there is a swollen hemorrhoid sticking out, and that's where usually it becomes either it might bleed when you're wiping or having a bowel movement, or it's painful or itchy, just you're aware of it because you feel that there's something there. One thing you can do is just train reduce it or push it back in. So while you're bearing down, gently push it inside and then allow your anus to sort of constrict again to its natural position. What happens when it gets pushed out, it's a swollen blood vessel, a vein. And so then the blood gets trapped in it and it's not going to shrink in that position. It has to go back in in order to decompress and shrink. So it's not a fix necessarily, but it's going to prevent it from getting worse and worse and worse and being likely to bleed and be problematic for you. Yeah. And maybe reduce some of that pain. Absolutely. Because anybody who's had a hemorrhoid knows that this is like one of the most painful things. Yes. Yes. I would also like to say that a lot of women do have hemorrhoids and rectal bleeding in pregnancy. And I'm very aggressive about this, that if you're having rectal bleeding, if it's once or twice and it's like, oh, I was really constipated. Okay, fine. But if you're having recurrent rectal bleeding and no one has actually taken a look or a feel and told you that you have hemorrhoids, you need to have that evaluated. So many women are told, oh, you're pregnant. It must be hemorrhoids. It probably is, but there's a lot of other really scary bad things that can happen. And you're about to take on a baby and all of these other new things. You do not need a rectal cancer or anal cancer that's undiagnosed. So make sure that you tell your doctor whether they look or they refer you to somebody else. Somebody should be looking and telling you for sure what it is. I love it. That's why I have her here today. And as you can tell by the way we're talking, honestly, doctors are not freaked out by this type of stuff. So (laughs) the dinner conversations that I have with fellow doctors are hilarious. So if you are feeling nervous or squeamish about talking to your doctor, please know that we have seen it all. We have dealt with it all. We've talked about it all. You are not embarrassing us. Please just come say, look at this. And we're happy to look at it. And OBs and gynecologists especially would be totally happy to look at your vagina or rectum if you want them to. So it's not a big deal. Not a big deal at all. And I don't care if you shave your legs today. Yeah. We also don't care about that. One bit. One bit. I care about it when like I'm at the beach for myself, but I do not care when I'm in the doctor's office with somebody else. Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. That's so helpful. And I think just honest about what people go through, but maybe don't chat about. Okay. Let's talk about nipple trauma from breastfeeding because that's another 
thing that I think people sometimes wait a little bit on or think that's normal, but that ends up really causing a lot of trouble for them. Yes. And I know you're, you're speaking with some other people about lactation too. So hopefully you'll get lots of good information. I will say that I think a lot of people with this idealistic view of breastfeeding and what having a baby and being a mom is like, go into it having seen their friends who have now mastered breastfeeding and they're successful and it looks so easy. They're at Target and they just whip up their shirt and the baby latches and it's great. That is not how it is in the first two to four weeks. It takes a lot of work. Usually it takes getting completely topless and having maybe three or four extra people helping you get pillows positioned and oh, I forgot my water bottle nearby and all of these things. But latch is the most important for really that nipple trauma. Mm -hmm. If you have never breastfed or have not breastfed in the last few months, your nipples need to get toughened up. And that's just part of the process. So the first one to two weeks, it is going to hurt. Even if everything is perfect, it is going to hurt in the first one to two weeks, but it shouldn't hurt the whole time that the baby is nursing. So latching on that very first, if they're getting a good latch, it's still going to be like, okay, okay. We're good. Yes. So that's okay. And that's normal. But if it hurts the entire time that the baby's latched on, then that's probably an issue with their latch or tongue or something about the sort of the combination of your nipple and their mouth. There's all kinds of things. The main thing I can say is just make sure that somebody who knows what they're doing is watching you breastfeed and helping you breastfeed in those first few days, because you don't want you or the baby to develop bad habits with how to get that appropriate latch. If you need something like a nipple ointment to help this gel soothe these pads, things are really helpful mm -hmm. that can help you put cold stuff on your nipple in between breastfeeding and definitely making sure somebody assesses the baby's mouth for making sure there's no issues with tongue tie and other issues with the anatomy in their mouth. Some people's nipples are inverted or too small or too big to match the size of their baby's mouth. So that a nipple shield can be helpful in some of those situations. And those things might change as the baby grows or your milk comes in. So it doesn't mean that you're destined to always have that issue with breastfeeding, but it's something to deal with in the moment if you need to. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say on this one, because I see the other side, I see the babies, you know, in clinic, this is one that if you feel like you're having trouble, ask for help earlier versus later. So for sure in the hospital, getting help with the latch, speaking of policies, right. And like how much help we give people when they're at the hospital, it's impossible in my opinion, to ask someone to be exclusively breastfeeding and then not give them information or hands-on help as to how to do that from the very, very beginning. Absolutely. So be the nice squeaky wheel, get in there and say, I need help or designate if you have a partner. That's a great thing for your partner to advocate for you on, right? Mm -hmm. I think that she likes some extra help. There are some code words like the latch is not quite right. Or it feels like I'm having some nipple pain, right? Because if you are having those things, then it would be helpful to get an assessment. And then the other thing that I see is I see parents, moms kind of tough it out and like you said, look at their pro friends who've been on like their eighth kid and then compare themselves to that person and say like, well, I feel like this should be easier because like Jenny on, from the block is like able to do this with no problem and just, yeah, be on her couch and whatever. Even as a pediatrician, having had done lots of lactation stuff with my patients and given advice I had someone come to my home, help me in the hospital. I went back into lactation twice because this is one of those like hands-on, you have to actually do it to learn how to ride the bike. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, even if you've breastfed before, a new baby might be totally different. You might be remembering how it was at the end of your, when your baby weaned at one year old before, and now you have this brand new newborn who has no strength of their head and neck control. So it, and it can just be different. Some babies cluster feed, other babies want, are really efficient with breastfeeding. Some just 
suck a little and fall asleep. So mm-hmm. I always try to remind, remind moms, especially brand new moms. I assume you have never done this before. Is that a fair assumption? Your baby has never done this before. In fact, your baby's just learning to breathe, let alone mm-hmm. identifying that he's hungry or uses his mouth to get food. So everybody just go into it with an open mind, knowing that like we all have a little bit of work to do to try and figure out, you know, the best fit here. And then also I almost always, even if people are doing okay in the hospital, I really recommend that they schedule a lactation follow-up visit with either one of the lactation consultants from the hospital or make sure that their pediatrician's office has support for them because usually people are leaving the hospital before their milk is even in. So it seems like, oh, the baby's getting colostrum, the weight hasn't dropped too much, but then we get to one week or two weeks. And then there's a big issue with supply and demand and how long a mom needs to feed for people. Are, oh, I did it for 15 minutes. And then I did the other side and baby seemed okay. And then I pumped and I got all these ounces and I'm thinking, okay, well, what is there an issue? Is there not? Mm-hmm. So just making sure you have someone weighing in and helping figure out that sort of supply demand issue once your milk actually comes in, because it's, it's such a weird time to send someone from home from the hospital and say, oh, you're good to go with breastfeeding. No, it hasn't really started yet. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And we see a lot of families that are either not kind of worried enough or too worried, like on the spectrum. Whenever I see a family that I feel like is kind of like in that sweet spot, I always comment on it because it's so rare. <laughs> so I see lots of families that are very, yeah, it's all going well because my baby fed, they fed for a really long time. They were sleeping the whole time, but they were like on there forever. It didn't really hurt. And then I pumped, I got all this milk and I stored it in the fridge. I'm like, okay, I hope it's fine, but let's just get some extra help from a specialist. I will just be sure because your baby's actually losing weight. I feel like we need a little bit more milk here to get things going in the right direction. So yes, this is not a time period where we expect as providers, you to be an expert. You're learning, your baby's learning. Everything you're going through is normal, but is not going to feel natural. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So finally, how do you think we can give moms more grace or help them to have more grace in the postpartum period? Because I think that is one of the biggest struggles I see with my patients. I'm sure for you too. Absolutely. Obviously at a policy level, (laughs) giving more time off work preferably paid time. So we don't have to worry about those financial struggles that make us go back to work maybe before us and our babies are ready. Same thing for partners, as much as we can support that with partners being able to spend time at home too. I think that's really helpful. It's hard for women to go home from the hospital after having had a baby. And then the other time that I see them really struggle is if their partner has been home for a week or a few weeks. And then that first week back when their partner goes back to work, both apart and and not to, I mean, whether it be a a dad or another mom or something, the other partner going back to work can be really hard on them too. Because now they feel like they're being helpless at home and they're really missing out and they have this financial pressure to go back to work and make money and come home. So it's just such a challenge. But I think, you know, in in the meantime, until we get all of the companies and policies to help sort of catch up with what we should be doing, what would be the right thing, I think really normalizing it. People talk to me about it and I really appreciate that. And I try to talk to people about it, but I can't tell you how many people I don't think are talking to their friends or coworkers or whatever about the struggles that they've had. And they kind of forget, to be honest. I I don't want to say that they totally forget, but those first few weeks are such a blur and you're so sleep deprived and so tired and that I think people forget how much they struggled 
in those weeks and then aren't necessarily there for their friends and family in the same way that they would have really appreciated somebody being there for them when they were going through it. Yeah. So I think really normalizing it. I think identifying when it's something concerning versus when it's normal baby blues. And that's a tricky thing because for someone who's always been really happy and functional to now be at home and feeling sad and tearful, that's disorienting and think, gosh, do I have postpartum depression? One way that I just a quick kind of thing that I'll put out there when people are leaving the hospital to them and to their partners, I want the partner to hear me say this. If you know, she drops a pile of laundry or some of her pumped milk spills and she cries, but it's like laughing as she's crying. That is normal. That is her acknowledging how tired she is and how crazy this new situation is for her. But if she's crying and doesn't want to get out of bed, the baby is crying. She knows she needs to get up and she just doesn't. That's not normal. That's now when it's becoming something more pathologic. So you may be too tired to want to get up, but you still get up. You still take a shower. You still change your baby's diaper because you love your baby and you can laugh and smile when they poop on you. Those are normal baby blue stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But if it's getting worse, if it's becoming so that you can't function, that's not normal. And there is help. Absolutely. And your OB and your pediatrician, and there are groups like Baby Blues Connection that you can call. That's like a 1-800 number that you can just talk to someone who's been there before or trained in helping to make sure that you and your baby are safe. Please make sure that you reach out if you're in that position right now. Jessica, Dr. Vogie, <laughs> thank you so much for coming and talking with us about some really real intimate things that people need to talk more about so that people can get the help they need. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Hey, 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 if you loved this episode, make sure to subscribe to the Modern Mommy Doc podcast so you're automatically notified every time we have powerful information, inspiration, and amazing guests to share with you. We would also be so honored if you shared the Modern Mommy Doc podcast with your friends by snapping a screenshot of this episode and posting it with hashtag Modern Mommy Doc so we can spread the word and help more mamas win at parenting without losing themselves. Thanks for being part of our community.